Go with me to James chapter 3. And while you're turning to James chapter 3, I want to let you know that you're here today to participate in a checkup. The good news is, unlike your medical checkups, you don't have to wear those special gowns, but you do have to get exposed a little bit today. James chapter 3, as we come to a checkup of the life and the health of our church, we should ask the question first, okay, so what are we going to use as a standard to measure our health when we go to those uh, medical checkups? They do things that are standardized in determining whether or not you're well. That's why they draw blood and run multiple tests from that. That's why they do some of the other things. Uh, It's easier for us to do that because that's established for us. When it comes time for us to check on the health of the church, we have to ask ourselves, what do we use as a standard? Now, some people would quickly go to um, the standard of finances and facilities Now, I will say on the front end of this, one of the things I've heard in the past and have used this in the past is it takes a pure genius to be 100% wrong about something. Um, So if, if those people who say financial criteria determine the health of a church, uh, I guess I would say to them that they are close to being geniuses. Uh, it is one element, but it is not the way to test the health of a church. Uh, speaking of financial stuff, let me go ahead and give you an announcement here. And that is that uh, we are now into the budget approval process. We've been in the budget development process for our church for the upcoming year uh, in 2016. And when you leave today, you'll have the opportunity at the back to pick up a copy of the proposed budget for 2016. Uh, Boy, if we did 17, we'd be way ahead of the game. But uh, 2016 budgets are ready for you to pick up, the proposed budgets anyway. And uh, we're going to change our schedule a little bit from what I told you last week. And instead of having an afternoon meeting today to discuss that, we want to give you some time to work through it uh, and understand it and then to ask questions about it. So the way we're going to do that is you pick it up today. Next Sunday, during the Sunday school hour... Uh, we'll go ahead and do Sunday school as usual. All of our teachers will, I guess they'll all be teaching. It depends on uh, what's their schedule. But as far as the church schedule, we'll do Sunday school as normal. But during the Sunday school hour, if you would like to know something about the budget that you don't have an answer for, during that Sunday school hour, we'll have a discussion led by one of our members of the finance committee. All right, And that's not in place of Sunday school. We are still going to have that. So if you just want to know, and Sunday is the only time you can hear a discussion, then we'll do that during Sunday school next week. If you don't want to miss Sunday school, which I encourage you not to miss as a rule, um, then the following Sunday, which is the Sunday after Thanksgiving, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we'll have that same discussion repeated, all right? So if you know you're going to be out of town uh, over the Thanksgiving holidays and you want to have some input on that or some understanding of that, then next Sunday is your time during the Sunday school hour. Otherwise, 4 o'clock the following Sunday. And then on December the 6th, we will, I believe it's, that's the first Sunday of December, we'll have the vote, okay? The vote will be called business meetings at the end of this service and the previous service uh, 
and it will be without discussion. It'll be a straight vote. So, all right, so that's the commercial, and it's tied to the what do we use as a standard for us measuring the health of a church. Some people would say it's not the finances, it's the level of activity of a church. If we want to really know if a church is healthy, then we look at how busy they are. Again, you are close to being a genius if you think that's the deal because that's... Have you ever cooked frog legs? Hello? You know what happens when you cook frog legs? There's a lot of activity in that pan. And unless you cook your frogs alive, um, if you do, that's a little bit cruel, but... um, Cooking frog legs should be a good example to us to know that just activity in a church doesn't mean it's healthy. It just may be an active dead church. So we have to be careful about that. Most of us, well, I won't go there. Um, so what is the standard? We, we push ourselves to, let me give you one that I think is closer to where we ought to be, what we ought to be using as a standard. A healthy church might be measured by its productivity. I'm a little cautious to just leave it at that because churches, by definition, even dead churches produce something. Dead stuff produces a smell that you don't want to be around. So just productivity itself is probably not the good answer. Maybe Jesus should be the one that we should look to for our standard. Matthew 28 and 19 and following, I'm not going to take the time to read it right now. Most of us know that passage. All authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. And he says to his disciples... What? Go, therefore, into all nations and make disciples. Now, we historically have gotten that backwards. We have emphasized the go part of that uh, to the exclusion of the make disciples part of that. The productivity of a church as it relates to making disciples is the definitive marker of a healthy church. So James gives us something to work with there today, and it's not just today. What we found is we've been working our way through this little letter of James, and we're three months into that working our way through it, and we're roughly halfway through the series. James has said to us, on the measure of productivity, your faith has to work. We've seen that it has to work in the way we do church, and it has to, has to work in our mouths. And today, James is going to say that it has to work in our behavior. And he explains that a little more fully than just that. So let me just go to those, the passage for today, and we're going to look at that. And I'm going to come back and start unpacking it a little bit for us to see uh, a little more clearly and a little more in our face what James is saying to us. And becomes the measure by which we say whether we're healthy or not. So in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Now that's a question. So I'm going to pause for a minute and let the question settle in over us. Are you a wise guy? Here's what James would say as it relates to how to understand that. By his good conduct, let that wise guy person, the one who is wise and understanding, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. From where jealousy and selfish ambition, excuse me, from for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so as we come to look at this and unpack it for us, let me get you to think in terms of a sandwich. Now, I will have to tell you, from my vantage point, the world's best sandwich, if you're going to make me a sandwich to win my heart, it's got to be a BLT. Bacon, lettuce, and tomato with much bacon. Crisp bacon. You can throw the lettuce and tomatoes away as far as I'm concerned. Just give me the bacon. Right? All right, so I want you to think about a good BLT as we approach this passage. Because James writes in sandwich terminology for those foodies uh, among us. What is the constitution of a sandwich? I don't buy into the open-faced sandwich idea, okay? I want a sandwich, and I want it to be a BLT. So a proper sandwich has bread on either end, right? All right, so let's look at the bread part of this. Because James gives us a a construction here that helps us. He, He brackets the middle section here with the same truth stated two different ways. That's the bread of our sandwich here. Verse 13, who's wise and understanding among you? And then he answers the question that he's driving at. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What James is saying from the outset is one of the the things that holds us all together for us is an understanding that the wise person, the the person whose faith works in his behavior, does so because of wisdom in his life. If that's not enough for you, and you don't get that, I'm going to come back to it in just a moment, but let me go and give you the other piece of of the bread on this thing, and that's verses 17 and 18, and specifically verse 17, where he says, but the wisdom from above, and so he's back to that. This is what it looks like. Verse 13 says, you got to have it, and verse 17 says, this is what it looks like, that wisdom, but the wisdom from above is first pure. And then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, I'm going to take a week and maybe two weeks on verse 17, starting next week, for us to look at this and understand the full breadth of what he's saying in verse 17. Most of us know that passage in Galatians. We even teach our children to memorize this. We call it the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. You remember that one? Audience participation, I'll trigger it for you. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Love. Okay, we always get the love part, and then it tails off after that. And finally, two or three people are telling us what it is. And Spencer knows. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Thank you, sir. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, or faithfulness, right? Okay, get it out of self-control. That's the part we all say, well, that's for other people. That's that's for other people. All right, so we all we teach our people to memorize that verse, those verses. I don't know why we don't teach us to memorize James 3.17. Because it is chock full of life-altering standards. 
So we're going to spend a couple of weeks, or at least one week, working on just verse 17. But what I want you to get at this part of the message is, that is part of the sandwich. It's the twin truths, verse seven, sorry, 13 and then verse 17 together, lay this out for us to understand that what James is saying in this little section is that your faith has to work, and if it works, it will display itself with wise behavior. But the BLT part of this sandwich is what is locked off in the middle. And before we get to the middle, I want to make sure that we understand verse 13 a little better. Now, I'm convinced that one of the biggest um, struggles or maybe even uh, one of the worst practices we bring to our Bible study is to come to Bible study in such a way that we really buy into the idea that says, okay, really what I'm supposed to do is read it and then check off my daily task list that says study your Bible. And so we read it and we read through it and we don't stop for things that we should stop for and let it get all over us. It's not so much how much ground you cover in your Bible study, it's how much of the ground covers you is really the deal. So verse 13 What does he mean by this meekness of wisdom? The word meek, we know, and I always go back to the Beatitudes for this one because uh, it kind of lays us. You remember the Beatitudes, chapter 5 of Matthew? And blessed are the meek. And what's the promise that's attached to that? For they shall inherit the earth. And so we like the inherit the earth part of that as Western imperialistic kind of thinkers as capitalist thinkers that we think, okay, so acquire and hold it and then acquire more. And so we like that inherit the earth thing, but we don't really care much for the meekness thing as a rule. And some people get meekness wrong by thinking that it means weakness, and so it's this somehow mealy-mouthed, spineless kind of a Christian who walks around apologizing for their faith all the time. That's not at all what this is. Meekness is a term that's used to talk about strength, that has been tamed. It's a term used in the first century relative to breaking horses. To take a spirited, powerful animal and to break it down so that he could be ridden or used to pull plows, etc. To pull it into a post-first century context. Meekness is power, strength that has been tamed down. It's an interesting term that he uses here to refer to wisdom as it's applied into our lives, but by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Is is James saying there that meekness causes wisdom, that when we put meekness and we get tamed in that personal, powerful, self-controlled problem that we have, that God tames that down and then we acquire meekness from that? Or is he saying that because we are meek, that somehow that produces wisdom? And I think the best answer to that is yes, both of those seem to be what James has in mind. And then another master stroke of writing, James puts this truth out there for us and he says one of the ways that you get this good conduct in your life is to be tamed by God. And that produces wisdom in us. Well, that's all well and good, 
But how do we wear that? What does that look like in our day-to-day life? And so that comes then now to this contrast that he's making. So we get to the BLT part of this sandwich. And in, in these verses now, uh, what we get is, I like to make the distinction here. We need to make the distinction here between kingdom, that's a capital K, and it's singular. The contrast between a kingdom and kingdoms. That's a lowercase k, and it's plural. So again, verse 14, let me show you where that comes in. By the way, the title of this message, if you saw it on the billboard out there, or the marquee, is Me First. Well, that's part of the title. I'll finish it in a minute. But verses 14 through 16 are the Me First part of this. Those are kingdoms with a small k, and it's plural. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast. Don't be a me first kind of person, he says, and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. That's spelled out, that down from above is spelled out in verse 17. But is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So let me make sure we get this whole kingdom versus kingdoms thing. The kingdom of God is the capital K singular. When we talk about a church being productive, what we're talking about is training people to be disciples, to help people be disciples of Jesus Christ. In other words, to learn to be just like Christ was, as much as we can be as people. That's the kingdom of God. And I I like to say, and if if you stay for lunch today, you're probably going to hear it over there. As pastor of this particular church, it is not my goal to build this huge church with lots of people. It is my goal to build the kingdom of God. That should be our goal as a church. It is not our job to try to pack as many people into this room as we can do on a week-to-week basis. Now, all are welcome. And if God chooses to send 10,000 people here, well, first of all, we don't have enough air conditioning for that to be comfortable in this room. But if God chooses to send a bunch of people, I'm all for that, but that cannot be our goal. It has to be to build the kingdom of God. has to be. The problem with that is we're all people. Well, at least I am. Most of you, I think, are. Some of you I'm not too sure about yet. But the problem with being people is that we are eaten up with a me-first mentality. That's a good place for an amen, but that's okay. That's true. We're eaten up with that. And James knows that. And so in this discussion about our faith having to work and our behavior, uh, he he brings it down to the me-first mentality, but he sets it off, these two sandwich pieces on the outside, he sets it off with the recognition that what we're supposed to be is about, well, the meekness that comes as wisdom, or with wisdom, however you want to say that. Let me say it this way, how these kingdoms surface in a church. I don't know that any of us own giraffes. None of you own a giraffe, right? If you do, i got a granddaughter who would like a ride. Okay. Let's say, as a church, we decided that we needed to begin a ministry to giraffe keepers. Because <laughs> My granddaughter just laughed at that. Um, how do... What happens with that when we find a ministry that seems to be valid? 
some of us feel called to that ministry. Now, I'm choosing a giraffe keeper ministry because for the most part, none of us do that here. And I can talk about that without you thinking that I'm just hitting you over the head with a hammer. All right? So most of us not doing giraffe, but it may very well be that if we felt as a church we need to start a ministry to giraffe people, some of you would go, you know what, I need to do that. I feel God pushing me to minister to giraffe keepers. I mean, after all, what other part of life could be more ignored than a giraffe keeper? And so people start buying into the ministry, and it becomes important to them. They become passionate about it. But when me first starts kicking in, then that ministry then, for those people, becomes the primary ministry of the church, or it could be. And remember, I'm talking about a ministry we don't have, so you wear it for your ministry area, the part that you're passionate about. And if we're not careful, we get so focused on the giraffe keeper ministry that we think that the giraffe keeper ministry needs to be the preeminent ministry in the whole church. And so at budget time, the giraffe keeper people come forward and say, we need $10,000 this year. Oh, let me make that a little less. We need $10 million this year. And the finance committee goes, you've got to be kidding me. Nobody likes the giraffe keeper ministry. You will give you a dollar. And just so you know, people got what they asked for in the budget this year, so I'm not picking on that either. Not setting the finance committee up for problems. I'm just trying to lay it out for us how this tends to happen. And so before you know it, we start having these kingdoms all over the church. Okay? Because this person said, well, this is most important to me. Youth ministry is by far more important. By the way, you know, so we don't have any teenagers. Well, very few teenagers here today. That's because they're off on fall retreat, but a bunch of them are. And uh, so, you know, we talk about them. They're not here. Nobody likes youth ministry, right? <laughs> well, that's not true. But some of you are not about to work with teenagers, right? Some of us, we did our time. But you see, that becomes a me first statement too, doesn't it? Well, I did my time. Hello. And so kingdoms then are built off of me first. And kingdoms, small k, plural, usually do damage to the kingdom. And it's not wise. That seems to be what James is talking about here. And so kingdom's wisdom is, well, let's look what it says. Again, verse 15. This me first stuff... This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. If I went to Brian, who does a, an incredible job in our music ministry, okay? It's a good place for an amen to, but that's okay. Um, if I went to Brian and I said, you know what? Um, that whole ministry you're trying to do there is demonic. You think that would cause problems with me and Brian? Do you think that would cause problems with me and every member of the music ministry? Okay, so first of all, you need to know I'm not saying that. Okay? But James is saying that. Not about that particular ministry. But James is saying 
that when we operate in a, such a way that it is not with wisdom that comes from above, then by definition, the way we operate is demonic. Now, I'll guarantee you, people involved in kingdom skirmishes never believe that they're being demonic in the way they operate. But if it attacks the integrity of the kingdom of God in a local church, it is demonic, or at least has demonic overtones. Well, apparently, James doesn't mind calling things the way they are because he has opened a can of problems here for us. This whole idea of being selfish does damage. It does damage to people. I was in a coffee shop recently. Okay, it was a four bucks coffee shop. I was the only customer in there, which should have told me something probably. And I was discussing with the people, the baristas who were there, um, customers. I was the only one there. And so I, was, I felt like that was a good opportunity for me to get a little insight into the real world out there. And I said, so um, how, how's it going? Any rough customers today? And they said, no, we, we, not today. I said, well, you probably never get rough customers in here, right? And this one girl said, oh, you have no idea. I said, well, give me an idea. And she said, you know the milk that we use for our lattes? Um, that milk is 145 degrees. That's the way the machine makes it. And we have one customer who continues, and this might be you. If it is, then please hear this from the, side of the, the other side of the bar. Um, this girl said, we have this one customer who comes in and says, I want my milk to be 147 degrees. She says, well, it's 145. That's what our machine does. The lady says, I don't want it 145. I want it 147. Now, in my opinion, that lady needs a good shot of 145-degree milk to the face, but that's me. <laughs> now, I don't mean that. Okay, I don't mean that. Please don't do that, and certainly don't do that and say your pastor endorsed it. But you see how selfish that is? For, a, for an employee, you don't see how selfish that is, okay. Um, for an employee to immediately go to that example when talking about bad customers is an indicator that it causes problems to be selfish, right? And James says, if you have, this is verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast. Don't go around. This is a pride issue now. See, we don't think about pride being a me first thing so much. We think about it being, well, I'm, I'm, I, I, never mind. Uh, so let me jump down to another one here. Let me throw this one into me first as it relates to your relationship with your spouse if you're married. For where jealousy and self-ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Is it possible that one of the reasons we have so many issues in our families because we have a lot of people who just are intent on being me first? So let's get to a better piece of this. You understand the BLT part of this, the sandwich is, you know, the, the, the bread's really good on this sandwich. The BLT part's a little bit challenging. 
So let's get to the other part of it and understand what he says, uh, because he's, he's really emphasizing that now we get to the other part of the title, me first, and then I put in parentheses, really? You sure you want to operate on a me first approach? Because verse 17 says, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. And then verse 18, the proverb that he attaches to it, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, most of the time we think that peace is simply the absence of conflict. Do you see the news? Another set of terrorist attacks. How, how should we, as Christian people, respond to that? But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. The word here, peace, pulls a Hebrew word into Greek and we pull it into English. And in doing so, we lose the thrust of the Hebrew word. It is the word shalom. It means peace, but it means more than peace. It means more than the absence of conflict. This word means wholeness or completeness. Now, I I said to the early service, I'll say it here, and I'll have to pay for it later probably, but I'll pull back the the covers a little bit and let you see. Um, I've been a little concerned for Teresa lately. Uh, She and I have talked about this. She's concerned about me and my health, and I've watched that, that pressure on her. And I've watched many of you as you've stepped into that, and I appreciate what you've done to minister to her through all of this. Um, But this weekend, I saw a little shalom creep into her life that I hadn't seen lately uh, because she got some help. Lord knows she needed some help. Um, And what I mean by that is instead of it being me and her and her having to do a lot of things that I do, Um, her kids came, most of her kids. And better than that, her grandkids came. And so I put a picture on Facebook the other day that highlights this. I wasn't really thinking about the sermon when I did it, but uh, I put this picture on there with Declan, our grandson, and Mackenzie, uh, who's found a better offer now, it looks like, Um, (laughs) as they sat in her lap. And I watched Shalom creep all over Teresa. See, it's not just the absence of conflict. It's the inclusion, the infusion of peace that helps us to see that there is a fullness there, a completeness there. He says, James does, that wisdom does that for us. So maybe we should get a picture on what wisdom is. And I'll let our musicians come on up and... I'm going to start diving to the finish line of this message here, so hear me carefully as they come up. For us to get wisdom right is really key for this passage. It's what holds it all together. Wisdom, in the way that James uses it here, is a reference to seeing things through God's eyes. And it's not just seeing them through God's eyes, it's acting accordingly. I love having our grandkids here. And so here's a picture for you that I hope will help you to employ wisdom in your life. Mackenzie, at one point, now Declan's cool and all that, but you know, 
he didn't, he's not a whole lot of fun. He, he's just a few months old. All he does is occupy space right now. He, he'll be fun sooner or later, but right now he's just kind of there. Mackenzie, on the other hand, she's three years old. Oh, there's a world of fun with that kid. And over the course of the last few days, Mackenzie would break from her doing stuff. And boy, she is busy. She would break from doing stuff, and every once in a while she would crawl up into my lap in my chair. And occasionally when she would do that, she would just kind of lay her head over on my chest. Now, see, that, you talk about shalom, there's a little bit for you, right? And as she did that, it, it, I want to use that as the picture that we need here. Because wisdom comes when we crawl up into God's lap. We lay our head over on His chest. And we hear the heartbeat of God. We can follow so many different heartbeats in our world today that leave us ultimately lacking. Most of them lead us to selfishness. When you lay up in God's lap and you hear His heartbeat, it begins to become your heartbeat. And it's not that He adopts yours, it's that you adopt His. There's no more peaceful place to be in life than sheltered up in God's lap with His arms around you. But there's another benefit that comes from that. When you lay your head on God's lap, you also get God's line of sight. And you begin to see things the way God sees them. When you see them the way He sees them and you hear His heartbeat for all of creation, it begins to change the way you live. And wisdom sets in. And me first gets lost in the mix somewhere because me first is the furthest thing away from the way God operates. So how's your checkup going? Is your life and your area of life dominated by me first? Or do you see things God's way? And you act accordingly. Sooner or later, we're all going to be the guest of honor at a funeral service. I like the one of this little kid who knew that, and he knew, well, he knew that what you're supposed to do when somebody dies is you're supposed to say a few good words over them and then bury them. And his goldfish died. He know what else to do. He took that goldfish into the bathroom. And as he poured that goldfish, that dead goldfish, into the commode and flushed it, he said these things about his goldfish. He was fun while he lasted. I wonder what people will say about you when you die. Every life preaches its own funeral. You will be the guest of honor at a service just like that. And people will reflect back who you were in your life. Will they say you were a me first person? Or a person who modeled God in every part of their lives? Let's pray. And as we pray and you consider that question, on this checkup, not just for our church, but for you, how do you capture your life. Who are you? Where's God in that? And Father, as we come to this time, we pray that you would change hearts, that you would change lives. Give us the honesty to hear what you have to say to us, the courage to attack that, to be more like you want us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name.